0: Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, guide us by the power of the Holy Spirit into greater love of you through Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? Apart from what is the gospel and knowing the gospel, This is one of the most important questions you can ask yourself. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? Most people say, well, it's going to church. Well, that's part of it. Going to a good Bible-based, Christ-centered church is very important, but that doesn't get to the heart of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. To be a disciple, to be a follower of Jesus means to walk in Him. His footsteps to have his mind, his heart. And when you have his mind and his heart, there are certain things that you will stop doing. For example, getting drunk, that's not part of being a follower of Jesus. Gambling, that's not part of being a disciple of Jesus. Looking at certain pictures and videos and things. That's not being a disciple of Jesus. So there are some things that you are going to have to give up. But it goes deeper than that. You see, to be a disciple of Jesus, you are led by his heart and his mind, not your heart and your mind. Which means you are going to have to die to yourself. Or put another way, you have to die to the selfishness and pride that is inherent in each and every one of us. Now, this is difficult, right? Because the old nature wants to just rise up, especially when it's under stress. Quite frankly, when we are pricked, so to speak, by certain circumstances in life, It's really easy to revert back to that old nature, isn't it? So we get a lot of admonition in Scripture about what we are to do. So here's, if you want one reading for the week, it would be from Philippians chapter 2, verse 1 through 11. I'm going to read 1 through 8. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, So to be a disciple of Jesus is to have his mind, his heart, his love, his compassion, his service, his sacrifice. That's what it means to be a follower, a disciple of Jesus. Now, you might think to yourself, but I'm only human, right? But you don't know the stress I'm under. You don't know the circumstances I'm under. You don't know what's going on in my life, how weak I really am. You have the but, 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 but. I have that. Do any of you have something like that too? And yet, nowhere in Scripture do we get to say, well, that lets me off the hook. You and I, you and I together, We're called to a higher calling. We are called to a higher calling. We are called to be followers, to be disciples of Jesus. Now you might think, well, what does this have to do with Nehemiah? I thought he was rebuilding the wall. Nehemiah called his people to a higher calling. And he reminded them of the compassion that is needed as a body of believers. You see, when a body of believers is under stress, one of the first things that goes out the door is compassion. So today we have to learn and relearn what it means to have compassion. For Christ Jesus certainly had compassion on us. So we're going to go in our study of, Christ, uh, of Nehemiah, learning about Christ Jesus. And first of all, is about being able to hear and see the cry of others. Now, I only have a few of the words on here, but I'm going to read verses 1 through 4. Now, there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against the Jewish, their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's taxes on our fields and our vineyards. So we need to really set some uh, context here because without the context, we aren't going to be able to bridge this gap. So let me give you a little bit of the context. Overall, there was a huge economic strain that was going on. As we go through this, I think you're going to see the the very direct connections to this day. So, according to one commentary, this would have been around August, September, when the harvest was to begin. But it was also at this time that creditors were looking to get repaid, not only on the capital that they had loaned, but interest on that loan as well. And although we didn't really touch upon it last week, Nehemiah had actually called more of the people in from the fields to rebuild the wall. So not only did he call them in, there's a shortage of workers in the fields. So because there's a shortage of workers, there's a shortage of harvest. Because there's a shortage of harvest, There's a shortage of income, but creditors were still looking to get paid. I mean, we see that to this very day, right? I bet you, I bet all of us know somebody in a difficult time right now. So there's a lot of stress upon the people. And because of that, there was this great outcry. The people cried out. And notice, it doesn't say just the men. It's the men and the women involved in this. This was an outcry of the people. And this type of language is actually very similar to the outcry that the Israelites had when they were under slavery in Egypt before the Exodus. Exodus chapter 3, verse 9 says, And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. So the Egyptians were oppressing the people, the Jews, right? The Israelites. But now in Nehemiah's case, it wasn't the Egyptians who were oppressing them. It was their own people. It was the brothers and sisters of the Jewish faith who were oppressing other people brothers and sisters of the Jewish faith. This was selfishness at its core. You see, you had a couple groups of people there. One, you would have a group of the blue-collar workers who are just trying to live maybe day by day, certainly week by week. And we have people like that right now who are trying to live day by day or week by week. And then they're asked to repay Sums that they can't repay. Rent has increased dramatically in Fountain Hills. I mean, I know the prices of homes sold, but rent has as well. And interestingly enough, um, on Friday I got a call from the woman who administers the Good Samaritan Fund for the ministerial. So the ministerial is the group, Bible-based, Christ-believing churches, and we work together And we have a fund in which we help people of the community. So it could be an electric bill. It could be a wide variety of things. And we do have certain limits that we set. And there was an instance where I got a call Friday, and I was just working on this message as well. And it's like, well, there's God's timing as well. There's a situation of three generations Grandmother, mother, daughter, all living together, many deaths. I mean, it's a tragic, tragic story. And now they need rent for July. Otherwise, they're going to be kicked out. Their rent a couple of years ago would have been like seven, 800 bucks, $2,100. And this one building complex is not kind to people either. So you get that. That, the, the, oh, that's what was happening in Nehemiah's day. That's the gut wrench you should feel on that. There was another group of people. They owned the land, but these aren't like, I mean, wealthy landowners. I actually think more like farmers today who own a bunch of land, but they have to take out money for their, uh, to pay for equipment, to, to pay for the seed, uh, fertilizer, all that stuff, right? And, and then if the harvest doesn't do well, yes, I know we have government insurance, but they didn't have government insurance back then. And so you would get people who were literally mortgaging what they had to buy food. You also had another group of people who had to actually borrow money to pay taxes. Now, in those days, especially like a Persian king, the taxes were exorbitant. exorbitant. I can't get that out. They were really big. Okay. They were really big, but it just went to the king. It didn't even filter really back down to the provinces. But they had to borrow money to get that. Do you get the When you said, uh? Think of that, but double it and put yourself in that situation. It was dire, and there was a great outcry. There was also a great outcry because of this. And it says this, Nehemiah 5, 5. Now, our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children as their children. They're basically saying, look, we're, we're Jews just like your Jews. Yet. We are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. They were forced into slavery to pay the debt. Now, this type of slavery isn't what you think from American slavery or even the pictures of Roman slavery— this would have been much more like an indentured servant. But let's not kid ourselves. Being an indentured servant was could be really harsh depending on whose you were serving. Now, it wasn't prohibited. This indentured servitude was not prohibited in the Old Testament. It was actually highly regulated so people wouldn't be like the pagans and so they wouldn't be like others for instance, there was the Sabbath year, every seven year, every seventh year, you had to let all of your slaves, your indentured servants, your slaves, you had to set them free, and there was no debt anymore. So you had to do things like that. But do you understand there's this economic strain, and now that would be like some members of Joy Church being sold to other members of Joy Church to be indentured servants to pay off the bills. Do you get how wrong that is? See, what's at the core of all of this? The core of all, oh, and, and by the way, so, sorry, the, the, the Proverbs, it's been up on the screen there, but the proverb really runs true. The rich rules over the poor, and the borrower is a slave of the lender. So what's at the heart of all of this? It's selfishness. At the core of all of this is selfishness. Warren Wearsby puts it this way, and I've got a little longer quote. Selfishness means putting myself at the center of everything and insisting on getting what I want when I want it. It means exploiting others so I can be happy and taking advantage of them so I can, just so I can have my own way it is not only wanting my own way, but expecting everybody else to want my way too. That should all draw us up a little short, I think. So how do you respond to that? As a body of believers, how do you respond? This is what Nehemiah did. And I'm going to read... Verse six through eight. For I I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have brought back our Jewish brothers who had been sold to other, the other nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. Nehemiah was appropriately angry, wasn't he? He was angry. And that should be an appropriate response to true injustice wherever it is. But he did something. He says, I took counsel with myself. In essence, he paused a little bit. Rather than to respond in anger, rather than to respond in rage, and we talked about that last week, right? We are not to respond with rage. He took a moment to consult himself. Well, why is that important? Well, you don't want to increase the sin. In Ephesians, it says, be angry, but do not sin. So you probably grew up with the saying, if you're angry, count to 10, and if you're really angry, count to 100. Some people, yeah, some people say more than that, right? Uh, Certainly in our day and age, Writing an email and sending it when you're angry or posting something on social media when you're so angry like that, not very wise to do, right? I don't know if you know this. Abraham Lincoln, a great president, he often wrote very, very angry letters. And he would just pour out his anger upon that person. And then he would put that in an envelope and put it in a drawer. And he did not send them. And so that's what Nehemiah did when he consulted with himself. But he did something else rather than just cooling down. You see, he could have said, look, this is my way or the highway. Either do it how I want or you're out of here. And by the way, that's generally self-righteous anger. And he wasn't, by the way, trying to either be a politician to appease either group, any group. What he did was this. Nehemiah focused on what was right according to God's word and what was best for the community as a whole. He was willing to stand up for God's word and the community at the same time even if people didn't like it, and I'm going to guess there were a number of people who did not like that. You see, to stand for God's word and the community takes the courage of faith. It's really easy. It's really easy to say, look, this is God's word, and you either get on board Or get off the bus and we'll run you over. By the way, there's a lot of body counts left with churches who take that approach. It's a very legalistic approach. And I'm not going to name names, but they're out there. So that's one way, right? To just say, yes, this is what God says and Use it as a big, big stick, right? But the other, the other side, right, is to say, well, yeah, no, I know that's what God's Word says, but we got a community here, and we just want to be nice with the community, so we're going to do what the community really wants, and thus we're going to just kind of ignore God's Word. You understand that there's a difficulty in both to stand in the middle for God's Word and the community at the same time. There's a tension there. But this is what you and I are called to do. To stand for both. And thus, we look to Christ Jesus and his cross. We're willing to die to ourself, to give up our own own selfishness, our own greed, our own pride. We say, here's the word of God. And now how do we love one another throughout all of this? So, what Nehemiah was doing. Now he spoke to the officials first, by the way, the people in power. This was a gutsy move. I mean, he was governor at the time, but it was still a gutsy move. And then he also had a public hearing, which also was a very gutsy move. And I'm sure he had passion behind what he said. But you notice he didn't revert to name-calling? He didn't try to belittle them. What he did is he spoke the truth in love. You see, if you just speak the truth without love, it's often harsh and cruel. But love without truth is often just a meaningless platitude. You have to have both. And indeed, we are called for both. Ephesians chapter 4. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. So Nehemiah comes before the group, and he says this, The thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God To prevent the taunts of the nations of our enemies. To walk in the fear of our God. That's not a phrase we often hear, often use. It's used a lot in the Old Testament. And what does that mean? It doesn't mean true fear, that emotion, although it can be that too, because when you come before a holy God, there is fear. Just read any of the prophets. But it means to understand that he's holy majestic, sovereign, that he is steadfast in his love. That's that awe, the respect that you are to have of God. And therefore, we are to live according to him. And in the Old Testament, by the way, there's plenty of references there. Deuteronomy chapter 10, and now Israel. What does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and the statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you for, sorry, and to keep the commandments and the statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. You see, Nehemiah's life was founded on the fear of the Lord. And because it was founded on the fear of the Lord, He feared nothing else. Right? When you actually have the fear of the Lord, you have no fear of anything else. And this is why, when you take a look at the early church, the martyrs had no fear of the people who were hurting, torturing, and killing them because they loved the Lord so greatly. And by the way, in the Old Testament, I'm not going to reference it, but there were commands not to charge interest to your fellow Jews. So Nehemiah, he talks to the people. He reminds them of God's word, but he did not hold himself above the others. You know, we, we've actually talked about that in chapter 1 when he prayed, that he was a sinner along with everybody else. He never holds himself above the others. It says this, starting in verse 10, Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting interest, return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain and wine and oil that you have been extracting from them. Now, as far as we can tell, Nehemiah wouldn't have been guilty of extracting interest, but other people under him might have been doing that. So he includes himself in this. And thus, the lesson is for us that we are one body together. One Lord, one Christ. And so he asks for all of the land, the interest, to be repaid. And he does this because of love. Let's take a look at this. Then they said, We will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. So here I was thinking, all right, is he actually just using God's word like the law and clubbing them? Right? Guilt, we'd, we'd say this, guilting them into obeying. Or is he actually compelled by the love of God. And I think when you read Nehemiah, he, more than anything, is compelled by the love of God. Because if you want to use a stick and guilt people into doing things, it'll last a little while, but it has no lasting effect. And as disciples of Christ Jesus, we want to be disciples throughout our lives to have that lasting effect. And we do, not, we do that not to be compelled by trying to be a good Christian. We do that because of the love of Christ. Let's go to the gospel reading for just a moment here. So, I'm sorry. Before we get there, I I just, uh, I'm going to reference 1 John. To know the love of Christ Jesus is to have the love of others, to have compassion for those in need. 1 John says this, by this we know love. That he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So now we have the gospel reading, right? For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. Many people would read this like a prescription. Like, if you want to be a good Christian, you better do these things. And thus, they use the gospel reading as a stick. You better do these things, otherwise you're not a good Christian. But is what is being given in the gospel, is that a prescription or simply a description. And I would say to you that this is a description. It simply describes the actions of the sheep who are naturally doing what they should be doing because of love. See, when you follow Jesus, when you start to have his mind, his will, his compassion, his sacrifice you naturally start doing things that are according to him, not you. Because you've died to self and you're living for Christ. And when you do that, you start thinking that you should do them to be good. You just do them because you love. And you're surprised then when somebody calls it out. Like, well, that's just what you're supposed to be doing, right? That shouldn't be anything special. You know, even the sheep, they were surprised. They said, Lord, when did we see you hungry or feed you or thirsty, give you drink? And the simple answer is, truly I say to you, as you as you did it to one of the least of my brothers, you did it to me. So to be a follower of Jesus is to live consistently with his word and his will, which is what Nehemiah was doing. He was living consistent with God's word. He says, Moreover, from the time I was appointed to be governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor's. Of the governor. So he could have lived large, by the way. He could have lived really large. But he said he wasn't going to do that. Even though he was a governor, even though he was a leader, he was not above the others. He walked alongside his fellow brothers and sisters. And that's what you and I are to do as well. To be a disciple is to live consistent with God's word. And to walk alongside your brothers, your sisters, in the love of Christ Jesus. This is what Nehemiah was doing. This is the call to which you and I have been called. So, this week, because of his love, have the mind of Christ among yourselves. Read Philippians chapter 2. Stand for God's word and the community and live consistently according to his word and his love. Amen. Amen.